With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10... We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Brendan Fraser Information. I mean, Too Much Fraser. I mean, Brendan Much. I mean, Too Much Information. I'm just pitching wild. Too Much here. Brendan Fraser. Too Much Brendan Fraser. There's never enough Brendan Fraser. Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite Frasers, Brendan's, movies, music, TV shows, and more. Because that's what this show is really about. Living, laughing, loving. <laughs> Brendan Fraser. <laughs> we should start a Brendan Fraser podcast. I mean, it would do really well these days. Probably, right? Where <laughs> <laughs> are your two Brendan Frasers of Friend in fact, I had Scarab Beetles of Behind the Seedles first. That's not bad. We could work with that. Yeah. Can we A-B it? Can you cut two different versions of this and market <laughs> test it? I'll check the traffic on both. Yeah. 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 We'll go with that. And Jordan, today we're going to be talking about one of the most beloved hits from those waning days of the last millennium. We're talking about The Mummy. We're talking about 1999's The Mummy. Not to be confused with 2017's The Mummy or 1932's The Mummy or even 1959's The Mummy. That's right. We're talking about The Mummy, parentheses, 1999. Or as I like to call it, Mummy 99. (laughs) Can we make that a thing? Mummy 99. Just riffing wildly here. You thought this was going to be a short one. You're recording this at 11 p.m. your time, and I'm just riffing into the wind. You know, Jordan, what I think about this time in my life I think mostly about being bitterly let down by Star Wars The Phantom Menace and then having my mind blown wide open by The Matrix. But in between those two things, it was all about the mummy, baby. Bing bong. Uh, (laughs) PG-13 horror movie. (laughs) Quippy but dashing lead performance from Brendan Fraser, who I didn't know, that dude is 6'4". 
Yeah, I I didn't know that until reading this too. Yeah, big Brandon dude. Frazier would wash either of us in a fight with, especially ninety nine. Well, I mean, Rachel Weiss would wash either of us in a fight. That's true. God, I love Rachel Weiss. Um, what do you think about Mummy ninety nine, Jordan? I liked it. I mean, I think I saw it in the best possible scenario that anyone could ever see Mummy 99. I saw it at Go a drive-in movie theater in 1999. Oh, hell yeah. Which, like, yeah. I mean, that's that's all I have to say. I, oh, I, You know what? I will say I was so enamored by the fact that I was at a drive-in movie theater that I don't really remember yeah. paying much attention to the movie, which is kind mm. of in the grand tradition of going to a drive-in movie theater. But I was just... Yeah, but we were, like, 12, so you wouldn't have been trying to get, like, a squeezer or anything. No, I was just so happy that I was at a drive-in and, you know, I, I'd seen, seen Grease so many Frazier. times. and I think it was my first time at a drive-in, too. That's awesome. Yeah. That is just great. I imagine, though, that this scratched some of your, your like, a, like, a, like a Indiana Jones itch for you, though. Because you and I both love Indiana Love Jones. Indiana Jones. Yeah. yeah, I mean... <sighs> it's swashbuckling. It was literally pitched as swashbuckling. You love a you love when buckles are swashed. I've heard you say this. What is the derivation of of the phrase swashbuckling? No idea. I assume it has to do something with like keeping a, a sword belt up. Oh, that makes sense. Why is it called swashbuckling? Compound of swash to swagger. Wow, I was wrong on both counts. It is a compound of the archaic word swash to swagger with a drawn sword. And buckler, a small shield gripped in the fist, dating from the 16th century. Oh, far out. Anyway, yeah, I guess this is probably, it was probably too spooky for you, though. You don't like too mummies. Too spooky, yeah. And also, I mean, I, I love the old universal mummy stuff and the Abbott mm. and Costello meet the mummy and all those kind of, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the nadir of those films. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, like. that was what I was first exposed to. So I love that. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I mean, I loved Indiana Jones more, so there, there were the, some of the elements that felt a little too, it, it crossed the line from being a nod into being just like kind of pastiche to me, but, Oh, uh, but it's so perfect. I, I, I mean, it's so tightly edited. It's so funny. It's so, he's so good in it. I mean, I, I don't really, I don't know. I don't, I, we talked a lot, we were talking about, it's kind of depressing that, that the rock ended up being the biggest bankable action draw out of this. Brendan Fraser should have had more. He could have been like Harrison Ford, honestly. Oh, I think they yeah. I think they tried to do it with a couple of films and it didn't take. They were just like, you're too goofy. They kept giving him comedies, man. He could have been like, he should have been 300. He should have been like Gerard Butler. Butler yeah. Although like, Gerard uh, Butler didn't have much of a career after that either. He? Yeah. He could have been like a, he could have been a, like a, like a Bruce Willis type. He could have just been playing, you know, sarcastic detectives for for forever i mean some of his comedies were good so we, we were talking earlier you've never seen blast from the past nope oh it's great it's about a guy who's lived in a in a bomb shelter since the late 50s or early 60s and oh, then he comes out and he meets movie. alicia silverstone aha uh -huh. it's a good bit is he like you, where he like wishes that he lived in the past? Because he also did Encino Man, where he was from the past. Oh, right. And he also did Dudley Do-Right. Right after the same year as The Mummy, 99. Yeah. And he did Bedazzled, which is a remake of a 60s British comedy with uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Yep. Wow, maybe. You know what? Were you guys maybe like Brendan separated Frazier. at birth? Yeah, you guys. 
You guys, me, Brenda Fraser, and like Billy Joel. I think the three of us would sit around, watch the History Channel, <laughs> talk about Long Island. Where's Brendan Fraser from? I'm gonna say California. I'm gonna say Indianapolis, Indiana, to oh. Canadian parents. That is the least Californian thing you can be. A Hoosier, <laughs> born of Canex. First of his name. Hoosier born of Caddox. First of his name. (laughs) Oh, boy. I'm pretty sure he's going to win that Oscar. Is it good? I haven't seen it. No, I've heard the movie is like grotesque and kind of shitty, but it's the narrative for him. I mean, you know his whole thing about getting molested and blacklisted. And so, I mean, this is they're going to make a biopic of Brendan Fraser. And this is or excuse me, a biopic as I was yelled at on or i saw it on twitter is that actually it i just saw someone being like like a semi-viral tweet that was like biopic doesn't rhyme with myopic by because it's biographical pictures well that makes sense okay yeah yeah anyway in the arc of brendan fraser's in the brendan fraser biopic that's going to get made in 20 years starring austin butler the mummy is surely going to be like a first, third high point. It's going to be that George the Jungle. Oh, well, from the mummy's tortured path through the late 80s and early 90s development hell to the all too actually perilous shooting conditions of the film to the semi-real life Egyptology in the film. Here's everything you didn't know about the mummy, 1999. <laughs> Way do these people see how horny I am for Brendan Fraser? Actually, I think I'm hornier for... Ah, my parents listen to this show. (laughs) (laughs) So does my father-in-law. Story of 1999's The Mummy. Mummy 99. Story of Mummy 99 really begins with a producer named... And I cannot stop saying this guy's name. James Jim Jacks. James Jim Jacks? His his nickname is Jim. Jim Jacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. James Jim Jacks. Can you call Um, him Jim or no? I mean, he's dead, so no one's calling him anything. But uh, Is he he, the mummy? (laughs) Starring Jim Jacks as the mummy. No, this guy, uh, he he was was a producer for Ed Universal. Then he started his own company. He was uh, attached to Dazed and Confused, Tombstone, John Woo's first American film, Hard Target, starring JCVD. Mall rats. Mall he was, rats. Worked with a, he worked with the Cohen brothers on Raising Arizona, Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing. So like three bangers and then Intolerable Cruelty. So warrant warrant. But he and his producing partner named Sean Daniel had uh, started work on a version of The Mummy in the late 80s, which I think probably had something to do with it. The sort of mid to late 80s vogue of like monster teen movies because 87 was monster squad which basically brings back like non-contractually violating versions of the universal monsters crew and pits them against like the goonies that's like the, the pitch of monster squad and that was a huge hit and universal still had all the rights so people started um started trying to develop the mummy and the mummy um, probably had the whole you know indiana jones adjacent thing going for it too i imagine he is unraveled to death in the monster squad. That's how they they like they're like fleeing from him in a car and they snag one of his bandages and he gets unraveled. It's like a Scooby Doo villain death. Oh yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. That's the film where they blow up the Wolfman. That's <laughs> it's, it's, have you have you never seen Monster no. Squad? Oh, no. Monster Squad's amazing. Yeah, they have this whole there's this whole running gag about like 
well, like you have to shoot a werewolf with uh, with a silver bullet, but would dynamite work? <laughs> and it does. It's also probably more famously, it's the movie where they kick the Wolfman in the nuts and then say, "Wolfman's got nards." <laughs> it's like the eighties, man. Anyway, based on the success of that cinematic classic, they probably wanted to get the mummy. They were like, "Let's spin off this mummy guy. He's got legs." This is wild to me. I did not. I, another thing I didn't know this, other than the fact that Brandon Fraser was built like a brick house was the fact that uh there were like everybody in hollywood was attached to this thing uh george romero was originally of of the of the living deads to do the george mummy Le- yes wow uh, to write and direct um wow it's a oh my god and then then he was just pushed into a directing role and this woman named abby bernstein told a cinefast uh, who had this incredible making of article about the about the mummy? Uh, that they were going to do something that was like the Terminator, where they were just going to have like a mummy just like stalking through. Um, at one point, it was set in Beverly Hills, uh, but this thing, everyone was attached to this. Romero left the project, and then the next two people that were brought on were Clive Barker, who had done the two Hellraisers and was about to do Candyman, and was like the hot big thing in horror of the of the mid to late eighties. And then uh, Mick Garris, who is uh, a guy, Stephen King pal, and very horror guy about town. This was 1990, 1991. They were brought on to do this. And I didn't realize this. The pitch for Hellraiser 3 was going to be, um, was basically, Clyde Barker is really funny because he's been kind of kicked around by Hollywood. And so his sort of disgust for the the whole place is very funny. So I guess what happened was he uh, had written a, treatment for Hellraiser for the third Hellraiser movie that was going to be um essentially the first Cenobite like the pinhead the first demon that's in the Hellraiser universe was going to have been a pharaoh and then that didn't get made so he was like so now it's a mummy movie <laughs> and, and took that to Universal and I think they were going to make it they were they I, I was reading a little bit about this draft it was just very outre and very weird and, and Universal was literally like this is too weird to us like you can't we're not going to make this. And so then uh, it went to a screenwriter named Alan Ormsby and Joe Dante, who is doing the who had done Gremlins and was going to do Gremlins 2 uh, and, ha- and has a very deep love of this whole era of 50s kind of monster making stuff. Because then he went on to do uh, Matinee. Have you ever seen Matinee? No. That is a, a William. It's like a send up. It's starring John Goodman. It's like a send up of like William Castle style homegrown kind of budget DIY horror stuff. Um, anyway, then it was kicked back to George Romero and then Mick Garris again in 1994. So if you're keeping track, that's like five different iconic horror directors who were all attached to this thing in like three years. Joe Dante's version had Daniel Day-Lewis attached to star. Christopher Lee was going to be in it because he had just been in Gremlins 2. Christopher Lee was famously in the Hammer Horror version of The Mummy back in the 50s, Mummy 59. (laughs) And it got as far, Dante's version got as far as, because Joe Dante and Steven Spielberg are buddies because Dante had done Gremlins. And he got as far as Steven Spielberg apparently talking this over with Sid Sheinberg, who was the head of Universal at the time. And... On the set of Casper, supposedly, Joe Dante has told this interview where he's like, yeah, so we went to the set where they were making Casper and Spielberg pitched this uh, version of Mummy to Sid Sheinberg. And Sheinberg was like, 
and you're going to make it a period piece, right? Like it's going to be like set in the 20s or 30s. And uh, Joe Dante was like, no, it's going to be set in the modern day. And that scotched it. That, that one little detail ruined it. So by 1995, Mick Garris has a version that he said was virtually greenlit. And then Universal MCA was sold to Seagram's and Sid Scheidmer departed. Part of his exit deal was that he could pick whatever project in the works at Universal to take with him. And he picked The Mummy, the version that was in the works currently. And he overdeveloped it. To hear Mick Garris tell it, what happened was he was going to attract a much higher name writer. And then he was going to attract a bigger cast. And then this basically just kept driving the budget up and it just died in development hell. Um, even Nightmare on Elm Street uh, creator Wes Craven was uh, was hauled in and offered this thing at one point. It still didn't happen. And then the next draft of this, because you can trace these back through the Writers Guild, which is not a thing that I knew. You can trace the development of, of movies back through stuff that gets registered with the Writers Guild. The next one was in 1996. The writer named uh, Kevin Jar, who wrote Tombstone and Glory. And it is about this time that the film's actual and eventual director, Stephen Summers, gets involved. I'd always wanted to do a version of The Mummy, he said to Entertainment Weekly in 2019. When I was eight years old, I saw the old Boris Karloff one. It took me to ancient Egypt and Cairo of the 20s and 30s and scared the crap out of me. The film's producers, Sean Daniel and Jim Jacks, had been developing it for nine years. I was just finishing Deep Rising and I'd heard they'd parted ways with another writer-director. They took me right into Universal. One of the first things I said was, nobody wants to see a guy wrapped in bandages. They're going to laugh at it. I walked out and Jim was like, the studio wants to do it for $15 million. I said, I'm going to need that for visual effects alone. The chutzpah on this Steven Summers guy is incredible. That movie Deep Rising is like a, a sea monster picture. I don't think did super well. Stars treat, Starring Treat Williams. <laughs> Anybody? Star of the movie version of Hair. The Broadway musical Hair. It gets worse. That movie... Deep Rising, released on uh, February 98, grossed 11 mil on a 45 million budget. Ooh. So this guy is going into meetings with Universal going, I want to make The Mummy, this movie that's been in development hell for 10 years at this point, and I want to do it for more money for just the VFX budget than my last film grossed totally. One thing that actually helped him making this case, 1998's Babe, Pig in the City. Not a sentence I ever thought I was going to say. 90 million budget, grossed 69 million. So a flop. And the studio and its new leadership needed a hit. And new chairwoman Stacy Snyder sent out a list of scripts and properties that Universal owned. And Summers jumped on it. And Jim Jacks told the LA Times at the time that his vision for The Mummy was, quote, the most expensive version we'd had. It was also the biggest it was a period piece, and so all everyone lined up on this, and uh, Summers took an 18-page pitch to the studio. They gave him $80 million to make this. He spent six months researching it, eight weeks writing the screenplay. Production designer Alan Cameron, who worked with Summers on The Jungle Book, the live-action Jungle Book in 1994. Remember that movie? I have no memory of that whatsoever. This was a big era for live-action Disney movies, though. It wasn't the... Uh... Live action 101 Dalmatians, like 96? Yes, it was. 
Production designer Alan Cameron, who worked with Summers on The Jungle Book in 1994, went to the British Museum where he spent hours researching Egyptology. He turned a book commissioned by Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, when Napoleon invaded Egypt, he commissioned a book that included etchings, drawings, and catalogings of everything they, that the French found in the tombs they raided. And that became the film's production Bible. Uh, they initially wanted to shoot it in Arizona and California, all the usual, probably out in Utah, all the places that usually stand in for the desert when they're shooting in the States. But they decided to shoot in Morocco, in Marrakesh, and out in the desert. And a place called Air Food, and then eight weeks at Shepperton Studios in England. And there's some interesting real-life nods to uh, this era of Egyptology in this film. I didn't know this, but when you, if you're in the scene when Evie's in the library, if you zoom in really, really closely on the binders that are on those shelves, they contain the real-life seal of the Egypt Exploration Society. He spent six months researching this. He got those details yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the book that Evie is reading on the boat in that scene when the boat is attacked and they all have to jump off is called The Dwellers on the Nile by a guy named E.A. Wallace Budge. Published in 1885, it's been since discredited, but it would have been an appropriate thing for a, a budding Egyptologist to be reading in the 20s. So some nice little, uh, some nice little, oh, here's a fun side note that I didn't think to bring this up before. You know, Bram Stoker also wrote a famous novel about mummies. Bram Stoker wrote... Dracula. Of the of the Dracula of 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 the Dracula, yes. Uh, he he wrote a novel called um, "The Jewel of Seven Stars" that features a mummified Egyptian queen. So you have uh, Bram Stoker batting two thousand percent for creating universal monsters. Do they base any of the the mummy properties on that book or no? Nope. <laughs> But it was extremely controversial when it was published in 1903 because it was so violent. And he tried to republish it in 1912, and they told him to change the ending or they wouldn't publish it. What was the ending? I don't know. I didn't read that far. Oh. <laughs> you can find out for you if you're really interested. I mean, if, if, if that was really the sticking point in a book that was supposedly that violent, now I'm curious. Well, you have to understand this was occurring during the backdrop of uh, Egyptomania. <laughs> As Wikipedia is calling it, the peak of British fascination in, in Egypt between 1860 and 1914. Just teenage women screaming at mummies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Uh, something. Just a bunch of people dying, I guess. They didn't like that. Yeah, it just says in the second version, no one is harmed. So they were basically just like, yeah, you uh, you can't have... Wow, this book sounds insane. There's a mummified cat. There's a theory that the ancient Egyptians had discovered radium, the invention wow. of electricity. Yeah, sort of a chariot of the gods thing. Uh, Egyptomania, Bram Stoker, 1903. Jordan, bring us back to whatever the hell we were talking about before. <laughs> Come on, Dad. Casting. Mummy 99 casting. Supposedly the lead role of Rick O'Connell was offered to, of course, Tom Cruise. I feel like every action movie in the 90s yeah. had Tom Cruise in the running at some point. Uh, but he was busy filming Eyes Wide Shut, notably not an action movie. Well, there's action in it, but not that kind of action. Uh, Brad Pitt, thank you. Uh, <laughs> 
Brad Pitt was considered, as was Matt Damon. Ben Affleck? I can't see Ben Affleck. He would have been uh, coming off uh, Armageddon. No, uh, yeah, I guess. All right. And Phantoms. And he's I, just, I can't he's imagine the, bomb the guy being brunette. Honestly, that's like kind of the, <laughs> the big thing. I don't, you know, like in the desert, you got to have the sandy blonde. You got to have the Brendan Fraser. I'm taking that out of context next time. I need to cancel you. <laughs> I just can't imagine the lead guy being a brunette. I don't know. And Leonardo DiCaprio, although he would have been too small, I feel like. I mean, so Brendan Fraser is 6'4". I wasn't, I wasn't actually able to... This is like one of those things that's on like IMDb and everywhere. Oh, that like yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio desperately wanted to be in The Mummy. Really? And even tried, even tried to... Suppose the thing that I kept reading was that he tried to get... He tried to like weasel out of filming the beach so that he could film the mummy but i wasn't able to actually find that and like verify that from any primary source stuff so if anyone out there has a line on leo and if you or a 23 year old that you know is currently dating leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> tweet at jordan and i using the hashtag mummy 99 and we'll venmo you five bucks I mean, it seems like he wouldn't want to do this for the same reason they didn't want to do Titanic initially, whereas it's just like a one-dimensional, you know, cardboard, hunky character. Maybe he just loves mummies, man. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> or maybe he knew it was just going to be physically grueling being out in the desert, and that's kind of his thing. It's like, all well, right, well, if the character's lame, can I at least suffer physically for it? And then... Okay. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Although Brendan hasn't beat, because he died. Right, that's true. We'll get to that later. Director Steven Summers told Cine... I can never say this. Cinefantastique. That is quite a name. Uh, for their incredible article about the making of Mummy 99. Pretty early on, I wrote the lead guy as a macho action hero because he was involved with a lot of physical conflict and I wanted him to be able to respond. But I also wanted the story to have an element of humor and fun. At 6'4 and close to 200 pounds, solid rock, Brendan Fraser was a big, strong guy who could throw a punch and shoot a gun, and he could also make you laugh and laugh at himself. He has that kind of charm. Stephen Summers continued to Entertainment Weekly. My editor and producing partner, as soon as he read the script, he said, this is Brendan Fraser. And Brendan Fraser at the time had just come off George of the Jungle, where he spent the entire movie oiled up in a loincloth, I believe. Hell yeah, you know, Am I did. missing something? Okay, good. Uh, which grossed $174.5 million worldwide? I didn't know it was that big of a hit. Wow. Uh, Brendan Fraser was a little more muted about his first impressions to The Mummy. He told Entertainment Weekly simply, I liked the script very much. <laughs> Narrator voice. He did not. <laughs> huh, I mean... All right. I don't think he knew it would have, in his defense, I don't think he knew it was going to kill him. Right. Yes, 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 yes. Again, we're putting the cart ahead of the horse here. We'll get to the Brenner Frazier yeah. almost died story later. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. 
You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European Political Systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For the role of Evie Carnahan, Stephen Summers told Entertainment Weekly, the studio started throwing up all these American actresses. Nobody knew who Rachel Weisz was. She auditioned four or five times. And the character, Evie Carnahan, was named in honor of the explorer Evelyn Carnavan. Carnavan? Carnavan? Well, I know this because he's the daughter of of George Herbert, who's the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, who I know as the guy who bankrolled the... um, King the Tut. discovery of King Tut's tomb, yeah. uh, and he notably died soon after. He was supposed to be the one of the first victims of the supposed King Tut's curse when he got bitten by a mosquito and then cut the bite when he was shaving, and it became infected, and he died fairly soon after the discovery of the tomb, I think. It's a real Hell like, yeah. freaky way to die. So anyway, that's how the female lead in The Mummy got her name, Evie Canarhan. Uh, Rachel Weisz wasn't as well known as Brendan Fraser or even the rest of the cast for that matter, but she would return for the Mummy Returns, but not the third one, I guess. Mummy Returns kind of slaps. It's got a dirigible, yeah, like and it has the Rock, and it has yeah. the Rock. You know. Now I'm getting my my mummies confused. Was the Rock not in the first one? No. Okay. No, he's the Scorpion King, who is later. Oh uh, yes. Earns his own film. Uh, he is the titular Scorpion King. Apparently he was he filmed everything from from Mummy Returns in a day because he had like horrific food poisoning so he was like sweating and pooping and puking in like 130 degree heat and Stephen Summers was, was like, had him for a day he and he was like he'd be under this blanket and then we'd be like call 
and be like, well, uh, action, and then and, and the Rock would like throw himself in like and nail all the all the physicality and stuff, and then just like collapse in a pile of food poisoning when the camera stopped rolling. He's a pro. What can you say? He pops. Yeah. Uh, Rachel Vice trained six to eight hours a day for three months to do her fight scenes with Patricia in the Mummy Velasquez. Returns. Yeah, in the Mummy that, Returns. Okay, you remember that scene where they're like fighting yeah. with size for some reason? They have like Japanese weapons in yes. ancient Egypt, and they're like bikini fighting. Scene rules. But as you said, she did not return for the third mummy. Vice told the Birmingham Post in 1999, I don't normally like horror films. I get really scared. I was petrified watching Gremlins, which I don't recall as being that scary. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that this is a horror movie. It's Hokum, a comic book world. That's true. Uh, for the titular role of not the Scorpion King, but the mummy, uh, production cast Arnold Vosloo a stage-trained South African actor who'd been on Broadway. He's probably best known in Hollywood at this point, though, for being the bad guy in uh, Hard Target, which, uh, as I mentioned before, is John Woo's uh, legendary Hong Kong action director, John Woo's first American film, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme and his mullet. Um, it's a loose adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game set in Louisiana, uh, so you get Jean-Claude Van Damme doing a Cajun accent, and it... Uh, rules and then he took over the role of dark man from liam neeson for dark man's two and three uh those are wild movies sam raimi anyone dark man anyone uh apparently they auditioned a boatload of people for the role uh summers told cinefantastique that we were kind of at our wits end for imhotep and then suddenly arnold Vosloo walked in it was funny at first there was something kind of intimidating about him I can't explain it. He's Shakespearean. He's serious. He's very commanding. Within 30 seconds, I knew he was going to be the guy, and I never do that. But there was an adjustment period for Arnold Voslu. Uh, he said, they go, all right, here's your wardrobe. He's talking to EW. And it's like a G-string. I liked my beers, he continued. I had a bit of a paunch. Still do. <laughs> Steve told me afterwards that the wardrobe master said, we've got a problem. We've got a fat mummy. <laughs> so mean producer Jim Jacks told Cinefastique Arnold was only about 10 or 15 pounds overweight but he had to put on this little skirt and boy did every ounce of it show <laughs> I told him he had a month to lose the weight and I suggested he take a look at the Ten Commandments movie to see how Yul Brenner looked back then Bosalou added to Cinefastique they inflicted a trainer on me that's a great way to phrase that whom I tried to avoid at all costs he cut out alcohol and sugar from his diet, and that helped him lose the weight. But uh, it was less easy being hairless for the role. He had had a bad experience with waxing once, so instead he committed to daily shaves to get the uh, requisite uh, smooth look for the character. He said he was doing research for it, and he was like, I found out that the priests shaved their head, so I went ahead and shaved everything. <laughs> That's right, he looks like a Ken doll. <laughs> <laughs> and also in order to nail the Egyptian required for the role he worked with Dr. Stuart Smith of the Institute of Archaeology at UCLA who supervised Stephen Summer's script and Vosloo worked with Smith over the phone for hours sometimes at 3am because of the time difference between Morocco where they were shooting and LA to learn these lines phonetically the rest of the film's casting is, well, well the, all the entirety of the film's casting, I shouldn't even say the rest. It's troublesome in uh, 2023. There's uh, no 
Egyptian people in any of the film's <laughs> major roles. The guy uh, playing Dr. Terrence Bay, who is the chief curator at the museum, is Indian-American actor Eric Alvari. Odid Fear, who plays uh, Ardeth Bay, is Israeli. The guy who plays Seti, the pharaoh at the beginning of the film, is also Israeli, Aaron Nepal. Uh, Imhotep is played by a South African dude, and Anak Sunamun is played by Patricia Velasquez, who is Venezuelan. I always wonder, if it were happening today, would I get the part, Vaslu told Entertainment Weekly in 2019? I mean, here I am, white, South African. They'd probably cast a real Egyptian. Uh, Omid Dijali, who plays the warden, is one of the only people who brings up having any sensitivities around this at the time. He told EEW, I have an Iranian background, so I was very aware that if I ever did film roles, I had to represent Middle Eastern culture. This was at a time when there were very few Middle Eastern roles at all that weren't terrorists. Steve said, we're looking for kind of Rifki from Midnight Express, and that was a Turkish warden who was really evil. I said, look, why don't we play him differently? Because with all due respect to you, what you've written is not even one-dimensional. I can possibly get this to a two-dimensional stereotype, which is a great line. So I did this piece to the camera. It had nothing to do with the script. And he said, that's great. Does it have to be so funny? And I said, the only way I can do this without being lynched by my own people is to make it slightly humorous. Uh, not a lot of reviews pointed this out at the time. Um, Siskel and Ebert had a guest reviewer named David Anson on the show who said the Arab bashing of this movie is, quote, kind of unforgivable, uh, adding that it was evidence of the kind of condescension and contempt that Hollywood would not dare with any other group, though uh, Siskel and Ebert ultimately both gave it two <laughs> thumbs up. In his New Yorker <laughs> review, Anthony Lane claimed that he could scarcely believe what he was seeing suggesting a party game for Hollywood producers that reads, try replacing one Semitic group with another, Jews instead of Arabs, and then listen for the laugh. Okay, bud. Uh, Former Associated Press writer Michael Hoffman called it a racist masterpiece and a consummate example of bigotry that depicts Arab characters as either filthy, greedy, slimy pigs or mindless, murderous zombies. And uh, Reina Shanawani at Cornell University directly wrote Universal and got the response from them, The Mummy is escapist entertainment, and as such, is not intended in any way to be perceived as a realistic depiction of any group of people. Or as I like to call it, the Aladdin excuse. Yeah. Oi. You think they would have learned their lesson from the backlash from Aladdin? Do you? (laughs) Would you? Uh, The real monster of this story, though, was shooting on location. At the time that the mummy was being produced, <laughs> at the time the mummy was being produced, Egypt's political... The in- real monster was us in the sun. <laughs> Shooting uh, in Cairo at the time would have been, A, difficult because the city is modern, uh, you know, it had been modernized and didn't have the requisite looks, and also it was because of the political instability in Egypt at the time, it would have not made sense for them to shoot it there. Uh, and so they shot the city scenes in Marrakesh, which, uh, was easier for them to kind of fake being in the twenties, although they did have to rip down a bunch of streetlights and power poles and stuff. Uh, and then also in the Sahara desert where the set of Hamenoptera was built in a dormant volcano, uh, (laughs) on the film's production blog on the official site, Summers said a city hidden in the crater of an extinct volcano made perfect sense. Out in the middle of the desert, you would never see it. You would never even think of entering the crater unless you knew it was inside that volcano. They built the Hamanopcha set out there over the course of 16 weeks, which included columns that were rigged to collapse at the climactic moment. 
Uh, but as if building all of this wasn't enough, they also had to house and feed a cast and crew of over 800 people, including 200 Toreg horse riders. Uh, and this is a outside of the tiny village of Erfud, which was like not even a tourist destination at the time. Uh, fortunately, they had an expert in the form of co-producer Patricia Carr, who had extensive remote location shooting. She had done work on Return of the Jedi, which was, uh, wasn't the Star Wars? They were filmed in Tunisia, I want to say. Tunisia, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom. Uh, she said, we had to do a great amount of work in a relatively small amount of time. But after meeting with local city officials, we were able to get medical cover in place, as well as arrange all the catering and transportation and have everything completed in record time. Summers told EW, it was a British crew, and I was this young American, and everyone was like, who is this guy? And not in a good way. <laughs> I told everybody, we have a six-week shoot in Morocco. They looked at the pages. Cinematographer Adrian Biddle, the camera crew, and the grips. I think they thought, there's no way in hell we're getting out of here in six weeks. The temperature during the hottest part in the day went up to 130 degrees. And the local flora and fauna made shooting an absolute nightmare. Josh Hanna, who played Evie's brother in the movie, said the biggest challenge was maintaining the energy level right up to the start of the scene. It was really hot out there, and the snakes and scorpions and the spiders made it difficult to keep focus and your enthusiasm. <laughs> and Brendan Fraser told EW, we got a lot of B12 shots in the ass, <laughs> whether we wanted them or not. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> Being involuntarily given a B12 shot. They just sneak Aww. up behind you and they're like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> and I guess production created a special beverage that everyone drank every two hours to battle the dehydration. The crew would often begin their days shooting in the desert at 2.30 in the morning to get the first rays of the morning light. And they'd work until midday when it became too hot. And not to mention, you know, the sun making it way too blinding to shoot before picking back up again in the evening. When did these guys sleep? When it cooled down enough, mm -hmm. <laughs> they sent out a memo. <laughs> Brandon Frazier has this great line to the EW. They sent out a memo describing a type of snake. <laughs> and fun fact, if you're ever shooting a movie and you get a memo about the type of snake. Maybe it's not your kind of movie. Yeah. I think it had yellow dots on it, he continued. They said, if you see this kind of snake, do not go near it. Because if it bites you, at best, they'll amputate your limb. Anyway. There I was, pissing down a rock, and I looked down, and there's the yellow dot snake. I was like, F I just ran for it. <laughs> I don't like to hear how miserable Brendan Fraser was during the production of this movie. The number of times he almost died. Yeah. Yeah. But worth it? Yeah. Yeah. Rachel Weiss told the Birmingham Post, quite a few people were airlifted out after they'd been bitten by scorpions. They used to have a scorpion wrangler who would collect them in empty Avion bottles and then shake them in front of your face going, look what we found. <laughs> Fortunately, she explained, uh, there was the scene in which a rat runs over her while she's tied to an altar. The rat was a professional actor rat. <laughs> no? Professional actor rat. They have them. They're sag. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Uh, not a wild rat. And that scene apparently took nine days to film because of the amount of effects in it, which meant Rachel Weiss was strapped to that altar for a long time. Let's put it that way. The scarab beetles that keep popping up are actually a composite of several real insects. But the sound, though, it's just a rain stick, which <laughs> is 
charmingly funny. charmingly yeah, low it, tech <laughs> kindergarten music class of them yes they use rubber ones as stand-ins on the set though thankfully and not real life insects <laughs> there's this amazing behind the scenes thing where they show how they did the um the 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 shot of when they they mummify uh, Imhotep at the beginning and they pour all the scarabs into his coffin and before they're showing how they composited it right where they have like first like him and then a CG version of him that's being layered by computers and in the and in the bare bones version <laughs> they just dump this thing like the the big thing out over him and it's just like three or four rubber bugs fall out <laughs> it's so <laughs> underwhelming but he's still like squirming around in the, in the <laughs> mummy wrappings like his eyes wide with terror they actually wrapped him up in that that's not a stunt oh, person oh, good for Arnold Russo really went the extra mile after being <laughs> body shamed and shaved to daily every day <laughs> now we gotta talk about the camels which all the <laughs> actors apparently hated according to the film's commentary track Kevin J. O'Connor, who plays Benny, said that his camel took a special disliking to him. Uh, and O'Connor, who'd worked with Stephen Summers on Deep Impact, is really one of the film's MVPs. He had lived multiple lines, including the I love the whole wall of sand trick. <laughs> you have to do it in his weird voice. He did oh, you gotta do it. You do it. I, I love the whole wall of sand trick. That's good. <laughs> do the other ones. Uh, but he's like... Uh, when Rick's beating up my little buddy Benny, when Rick beats him up and he's uh, he's like, please think of my children. And Rick's like, you don't have any children. He, he, the line he ad-libbed is, someday I might. <laughs> <laughs> hey, O'Connell, looks like I've got all the horses. Hey, Benny, looks like you're on the wrong side of the river. Yeah, this movie's great. Who didn't like the mummy? I guess he specifically asked the costume department for pants that didn't fit and he grew a pencil <laughs> mustache just to make him look even more ridiculous. That line, I, I have never laughed maybe as hard ever in that movie when he's, he's being approached by the mummy and he starts praying and then he rips open his shirt and he's got religious icons from every religion <laughs> and starts reciting prayers in like, in like Mongolian and ancient Hebrew. So good. But back to the onset miseries. There were also sandstorms that would blow up and wreck equipment, hurling sand around with enough force to strip the paint off of trailers. Imagine what that does to your skin. Uh, as well as other human threats. Brandon Fraser told EW, Jim Jacks, the producer, said, I took out million dollar kidnapping insurance policies on you. We were like, so basically you put a bounty on our head? He's like, that's one way of looking at it. I'll never forget. Kevin J. O'Connor goes, how much insurance did you take out on me? Eh, 50000 That should do it, was the reply. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't tell them that until after they were done filming either. They were like, I guess, all like that, sitting around talking about how the, about the shoot. And, and Stephen Summers was like, yeah, I had to take out kidnapping insurance on you guys. But thankfully, the film had the support of the Royal Moroccan Army, presumably to guard against any ne'er-do-wells who were going to try to kidnap their star. Yeah, you know. It's good to have an army. Yeah. <laughs> well, when's, when's, it, when's that ever backfired? Yeah. <laughs> Most of the cast in The Mummy 
excuse me, most of the cast in The Mummy 99, I should say, did their own stunts, including Rachel Weisz, who revealed to the Birmingham Post that there was, quote, one bad one where I had to turn around to shoot a rider on a horse. He was on a pulley that yanked him off, and he broke both his arms. They still use the shot, though. This is not a charitable industry. Weiss's <laughs> uh, scene in which the library shelves topple over was achieved by spinning a single camera around 360 degrees in one take, which meant Weiss had to duck out of its line of sight as the whole thing happened and pop back up at the end, which is risky. There were 12,000 books on those shelves, and the whole thing had to be done in one take because it would have taken another complete day to set up the shot. You know that scene, right? The domino, the domino library yeah. scene? That is wild. That is such I think I always assumed that was computers. I had no yeah. idea that was for real. Yeah, it's the only thing about that that's aged poorly is they when they do the, they go to a wide shot of her on the ladder balancing between the two shelves is very clearly a, not a particularly slight man in a wig and a dress. <laughs> but yeah, all those shelves, man. One take. Wow. And while the exterior of the Museum of Antiquities in Cairo is actually in Marrakesh, its interior is that of the Metmore Towers in the village of Metmore, Buckinghamshire, England. <laughs> Built in the 1850s for the Rothschild family. That Rothschild family? Yep. Wow. Uh, the house was seen also in Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Oh, that makes sense. And its exterior is used in Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Mm -hmm. And perhaps most famously, it's the Wayne Manor in Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. It's our second nice wide shot reference this episode. Uh, one of the sad things that uh, Brendan Fraser has talked about recently is how these movies destroyed his body. Uh, by the time he was filming the third one, he told GQ, I was put together with tape and ice. I just got like really nerdy and fetishy about ice packs. Screw cap ice packs and downhill mountain biking pads because they're small and they're light. They can fit under your clothes. I was building an exoskeleton for myself daily. He needed uh, back surgery twice. He had a laminectomy, which didn't fix his lumbar uh, spine, so he had to have it again. He needed a partial knee replacement. He had to have spinal pads fused together. And he needed to have his vocal cords repaired, which I don't even know how you do that. I guess just yelling. And, now, and then, of course, he almost died making this film. Uh, in the scene where his character is hung at the prison, uh, he, you know, in, I think the, the urban legend started in this basically, I think with that Birmingham post interview that, that, uh, Rachel Weiss gave, she was one of the first people who talked about it, but in 2019, he gave a very detailed explanation. Um, he was saying that, uh, <laughs> well, he said, I did get fully choked out. It was scary. And then EW immediately cuts to Steven Summers, who says it was Brendan's fault. Uh, Frazier explained there was a hangman's gallows and there was a hemp rope tied into a noose placed around my neck. The first take, I'm doing my best choking acting. Steve says, can we go for another one and take up the tension on your rope? I said, all right, one more, one more take because a noose around your neck is going to choke you in the arteries no matter what. I remember seeing the camera start to pan around and then it was like a black iris at the end of the silent film. He's talking about going unconscious. I regained consciousness to one of the EMTs saying my name. There was gravel in my ear. <laughs> oh. Compounding this is the fact that the rest of this cast all said that Summers would say the same thing before every take, which was, ready? Don't suck. Action. <laughs> so that was the last thing Brendan Fraser heard before he almost choked to death. 
Ah, memories. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Production picked up at Shepperton Studios in England for the interiors, with some exteriors shot out and about in the UK. For example, the scene that is supposed to take place on the Nile was actually the Thames. Uh, the port of Giza, where they all board the uh, the ship, was a massive set built at the historic dockyard in Chatham, about 35 miles southeast of London in Kent. Uh, it has also been seen in Les Mis and Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes. The set they built was 600 feet in length to uh, portray the, the this dockyard area. It had a steam train, a traction engine, three cranes, an open two-horse carriage, four horse-drawn carts, five dressing horses with grooms, nine pack donkeys and mules, as well as a market stalls and uh, for vendors. This whole thing eventually was filmed with 300 extras in it. 
Um, Stephen Summers said in the DVD commentary that some of the extras, local extras they picked up were uh, not particularly experienced in the film uh, industry. There's a, a scene in which one of the gentleman's eyes had to be CGI'd closed because he couldn't stop looking directly into the camera at every take and they just got tired of reshooting it. They also had to uh, CGI some of Rachel Weiss's parts away because her white nightgown got wet and they had to preserve a PG-13 rating. But the biggest challenge for this stage of production was ILM's motion capture work. Um, Industrial Light and Magic was working on this and the Star Wars The Phantom Menace at the same time. Uh, there was a, a, a VFX supervisor there named John Burton, who uh, Summers had worked with on Deep Rising, and they basically planned out their vision of uh, Imhotep in the mo of the character of the mummy. They said they didn't want the guy in bandages, so they wanted him to be a corpse, or first they wanted him as a human, and then a full corpse, and then a human again, with all the stages in between. And so they planned these five stages of him as fully human, gross mummy, and then just sort of a guy who you can see his guts. Uh, um, we wanted to create a photorealistic living corpse that was obviously not a man in a suit, obviously not an animatronic, and obviously alive, Burton told Cinefantastique. And they were constantly walking the line in doing these character creations uh, of something that was creepy but not gory because they had this PG-13 rating in mind the whole time. Uh, so he couldn't be bloody or, like, obviously gooey. So they were like, well, he's got to be desiccated, but we still need to see his guts. And this concept would be fleshed out, pun intended, by Burton, along with a team of nearly 100 artists. It took them five months of research and development, two months of shooting, and then 10 months of post-production VFX work. Uh, the technology that they used to motion capture and replace uh, the parts of Arnold Vosloh's body was a refinement of some of the technology that they used on The Phantom Menace. But on that film, they were using it to replace a character's entire head. I'm pretty sure it was Jar Jar. Uh, not just portions of their face. So what they basically had to do was create prosthetics for him that would motion capture parts of his face. But they had to be applicable as makeup and let him act through it. Uh, so they had to create like these LED motion capture things but still, and, and all that technology. But it had to be like two millimeters thick. Arnold also the his entire body, I believe probably hairless at this point, was laser scanned, uh, and then they also had to do the classic uh, plaster cast thing to get um, to get his torso and head captured. Some of his mummy powers, like the the uh, dust storms and 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 the plagues that he summons, are uh, particle tech, like particle animation stuff that ILM had developed for Twister, which is really funny. Whoa. Um, but others were much more low-tech. Uh, the hailstorm is dog food, painted white <laughs> and, and pelted at the cast. The boils and sores, though, the plague of boils and sores, were uh, those were prosthetics. Um, a six-person makeup crew applied 147 prosthetics to extras in three hours, which is something like one at the rate of seven and a half minutes. They crunched the numbers in Cinefantastique, which thankfully they shot that at night, so they didn't have to deal with that, doing that in 130 degree temperatures. Um, another fun thing that ILM was tasked with was creating digital gunfire because I guess maintaining all the prop guns in this heat and sand was such a nightmare that at some point while they were shooting, they were like, 
Uh, yeah, just have ILM digitalize all the gunshots later. Um, for Frazier's big fight with the mummy, the soldier mummies at the end, that's the scene that uh, Rachel Weiss is strapped to the altar for nine days at a clip. Uh, that was because basically they had a motion capture camera that he told Entertainment Weekly was the size of a very large industrial refrigerator uh, that was on rails and programmed to make the same set of moves, take after take after take. Uh, and he had to learn all of his choreography for that fight scene where he's like chopping mummies in half and like batting their heads around like baseballs. Um, he had to do all of that himself over and over and over again. And he had to learn that in two days. He said it on the on the commentary track. It's He said it's one big mimed fight with Rachel and I, and we ended up doing it all in one take. And the compositing technology that they were doing at this point is really, really interesting. Um, they basically built all of these creations like real humans like they built them with skeletons first and then animated the musculature over it um the mummies in that scene are supposed to look like the 1930s like universal mummies they're supposed to be like dusty and raggedy so they did uh wireframe versions of their skeletons and then another layer of all their clothing and then a third layer of this particle technology to get the dust that's flying off of them um really wild one thing that I've been unable to confirm, but that could be accurate, is that uh, mummies from Toby Hooper's 1985 movie Life Force were reused. In uh, Life Force is about a movie about a sexy space vampire lady who um, <laughs> s- drains the titular life force from people and 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 leaves them as uh, um, like desiccated corpses. Oh, it's like digital media. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> Hey, uh, this is where you do your golf swing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, that movie was shot in England, so possibly some of it at Shepperton. So that sounds plausible to me. But confirmed by the BBC of all people, in one of the shots in this film, you can see an extra wearing the robe that Sir Alec Guinness wore as Obi Wan Kenobi in Star Wars: A New Hope. That cloak. You know what I have to say about that. It does belong in him. I believe it is in a museum. Because what happened was they, after they filmed it, because no one thought, no one knew that first Star Wars was going to be a hit. So they just sent all this stuff back to the costumer called Berman's uh, at the time. And since they didn't, he didn't, uh, by the time he was a force ghost in the the next ones, they just found a different cloak for him because they didn't need the same one. So this cloak kept getting loaned out to other movies. The art, the BBC article says it may have also been in um, uh, in the name of the Rose, starring Sean Connery, because it was labeled as like a monk's robe. And then that company, Berman's, was bought by another company called Angels in 1992, and all of their costumes were moved from Camden to Herndon. But this stuff just kept getting loaned out, and then finally in 2005, they identified it as Sir Alec Guinness's <laughs> Obi Wan cloak. And took it out of active circulation and put it in a museum. I am reasonably sure that the Beatles got their Sgt. Pepper outfits from Berman's. Okay. I believe you. I think that's right. That's off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure that's right. The original spokeswoman for the costumer said that an original person, original costumer verified it was the same cloak. One of the guys was sorting through this pile of monk's robes and saw this brown one with an odd-shaped hood. He put it on, and the manager said, Oh my god, it's Alec Guinness's cloak from Star Wars. 
all this time, we'd been renting it out to customers wanting to hire a monk's outfit for a fancy dress party. <laughs> so this probably has like smudges of hummus on it from some like. <laughs> and it's in the mummy in one shot, and in one in the... crowd wow. shot, the mummy. Yeah, it was on display at Harrods after they found it. <laughs> Angels, the costumers, had an auction in 2017. And do you know what it went for? Okay, I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi's robe, I mean, that's got to be, I'm going to say like $1.2 Oh, so far over. I'm so sorry. Really? Yeah, just over 100000 What? Do you know how much? That's like the prop, though. Also, well, also at this auction uh sean connery's dinner jacket from thunderball i mean i don't know i feel like that's not of the connery bonds that's like not one of the bigger ones i mean fifty six thousand, close 64 7 ah. uh the hat and suit he wore in indiana jones and the last crusade what do you think that went for connery yeah um i'm gonna say forty six thousand. Fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. okay yeah in 2006, what do you think the Givenchy dress worn by Audrey Hepburn and Breakfast at Tiffany's went for? Oh, in the opening scene when she's eating the Danish in front of Tiffany's? Oh, man. In 2006, I'm going to say 88,000. <laughs> Good thing you're not doing this. 900 grand. I can't believe that sold that much more than Alec Guinness's Obi-Wan Kenobi robe. What can I say? Wow. There you go. There's your, there's your auction auction corner. TMI auction corner. Damn. Anyway, sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off talking about the historical accuracies of inaccuracies of the mummy. <laughs> mummy 99. Excuse me. Because we didn't do mummy 32 or mummy 59 or mummy. Yet. Ought 17. <laughs> well, folks, January was Titanic month. <laughs> February's mummy month here on TMI. We're going to do every mummy movie. <laughs> two a week. The rest of this month. It's a short month, but damn it. We're going to make it count. Anyway, this brings us to the most important question in this episode. How historically accurate is The Mummy 99? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, not very. For starters, the film opens with a panoramic view of the pyramids in Giza, featuring the Sphinx and their construction, though the narration refers to Thebes' City of the Living, which is actually several hundred miles away. Also, Seti's royal palace is, in the film, located next to the pyramids, Though considering the modern conception of the pyramids is basically giant cemeteries, palaces wouldn't have been anywhere near them. You're an Egyptologist. Can you confirm that? I'm not a huge expert. I just, I think that's true, though. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Uh, Hamanaptra, the city of the dead in the movie and the burial place of the pharaohs, was actually not real. The city of the dead would probably be more akin to the Valley of the Kings, where you know a lot of the famous mummies have been found. And Imhotep, though a real person, was not a high priest, but was actually the architect under the pharaoh Djoser. I think that's how you say that. Mm-hmm. Seti I, the pharaoh he betrays at the beginning of the film, actually ruled around 1300 BCE, which is actually about 1300 years after Imhotep died, so they never overlapped. And Aksunamun comes from Aksunamun, as he says it in the film. Aksunamun! Aksunamun comes from a similarly named person. <laughs> a similarly named person, I can't pronounce, who was the wife of Tutankhamun, or King Tut, from the late 14th century BC, but both she and Imhotep are taken directly from the 1932 film Mummy, better known as Mummy 32. 
<laughs> now, certain mummification details in The Mummy 99 are incorrect. There's no such ritual as the Homdai, the horrifying faith that Imhotep suffers in the film. Remind us what Homdai is. Uh, they cut out his tongue, wrap him up, and pour the scarabs over him. And then they chisel the, uh, they supposedly chisel the blessings off the outside of the sarcophagus, which damns him in both life and the afterlife. Although, you know, that's a bit of a plot hole, because if they ripped his tongue out with hot pincers, he couldn't speak as the mummy, and he talks a lot. He's a, he talks. He's a real talker. Imhotep was. His bit's dying. Keep going. No, I was trying. I'm trying to find a, to find a joke. <laughs> There's nothing there. There's nothing yeah. there. No. Uh, the canopic jars containing Imhotep's organs are somewhat accurate to the actual mummification process, where they would remove, uh, what was it, lungs, liver. Oh, you wrote it down. Lungs, liver, intestines, and stomachs. Uh, also known as a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. <sighs> they would not have removed the heart from the body because weighing the heart, overseen by the god Anibus, was an important part of the path to the afterlife. So they kept the heart in the body. The ancient Egyptians believed that the heart recorded all of the good and all of the bad deeds of a person's life, sort of like a a uh, a person's inner black box, if you will, <laughs> or your browser history. <laughs> Or your browser history. <laughs> and this was needed for judgment in the afterlife. After a person died, the heart was weighed against the feather of Mot, the goddess of truth and justice. And the scales were watched by Anubis, the jackal-headed god of embalming. And the results were recorded by Thoth, the ibis-headed god of writing. And if a person had led a decent life, the heart balanced with the feather the person was rendered worthy to live forever in paradise with Osiris. However, if the heart was heavier than the feather, the mystical creature Amit, which is part lion, part crocodile, and part hippopotamus, devours them. Hell yeah. That's a good myth. I was always, more of, a, myths. I was always more of a Greek and Roman guy than, uh, than I was but Egyptians, but I love the animal gods. I love the animal-headed gods. It's a, it's a, good, it's a good conceit. Why do you uh, prefer the Greek? They just had cooler monsters, you know. Mm. I like Minotaurs. I like Hydras. Uh, I like uh, what's the one with? I like are Griffins Greek. I like I just like monsters. They cool mon. They cooler monsters. But you know, Anubis, mummies. Uh, there's also Ardith Bay, who is the super hot goth guy with face tattoos. That funny fun fact. Ardith Bay is what. Boris Karloff's character goes by in the original Mummy. That's his like human alias. That's what Imhotep's fake name. It's an anagram for Death by Ra. Isn't that cool? Isn't that spooky? Ooh. Uh, anyway, he's uh he's he's a member of the secret society of the Medjai who are devoted to preventing Imhotep's return. That they were a real group. They were they appear in Egyptian archaeological records uh, from the Middle Kingdom. To the early New Kingdom era, um, some records suggest that they might have been mercenaries, other that they were basically like pastoral itinerant farmers, but they were a real group. Um, and it, by the time of the New Kingdom, uh, they were in charge of protecting the royal tombs. So that was somewhat accurate. 
the guy uh, that the hot dude playing uh, 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 Ardeth Bay, Oded Fair, who's later in Deuce Bigelow, male ju- gigolo, right? <laughs> I think he's the like training gigolo who trains Deuce Bigelow. I'm pretty sure. Can we double check that. Ah, oh, I was close. He's in Deuce Bigelow, European gigolo. <laughs> Second one. Scored you by really G- got to get your Deuce Bigelows right. <laughs> we pride ourselves on accuracy on the show. <laughs> and if you can't get your Deuce Bigelows right, you lose the trust of the audience. So that the, the, the forehead tattoo that he has is actually uh, Egyptian characters that transliterate to Imhotep, the letters of his name. And uh, across his cheek uh, are, is a word that's ma'at, which uh, translates to like truth or justice or something. So those are real uh, Egyptian characters that he has tattooed. And apparently Stephen Summers was like, um, he wanted him to be completely covered, uh, like head to toe in tattoos. And then was like, got to look at him and was like, well, I cannot, I can't throw soup on this Mona Lisa. I am... <laughs> And there are, there are, uh, there's a lot of facial tattooing that happens in that part of the world. The Berbers, uh, different places in Algeria, but you see it actually a lot more with women. Tribes women are, uh, have facial tattoos, but the Medjai did not. So that's a whiff. And lastly, there is no such thing as an actual bound copy of the Book of the Dead. That is a cinematic conflation, probably has something to do with, uh, the Necronomicon, like the, the, the Book of the Dead from the Evil Dead movies, um, the, the closest thing to that would have been a, a series of texts that uh, were found written down in a bunch of different tombs, um, but they were more of a, they were a series of, uh, of guidances to people who, who had died. It was essentially the handbook for the recently deceased from Beetlejuice that they buried people with. They were, it wasn't like how to raise the dead. It was like, hey, since you're going to the eternal afterlife, here's all the stuff that you're going to need. We're going to write it down and bury you with it. So, I mean, the, the Beatles song, the last track on Revolver, Tomorrow Never Knows, was based on a book, The Psychedelic Experience by Timothy Leary, that was based on Tibetan Book of the Dead. You know, turn off your mind, relax, right. and yes, float yes, yes, downstream. Yes, yes. It's kind of traces its origins back roughly to this type of thing. Yeah, it's Buddhist versus, you know, different, but, uh, but sure. Wedge the Beatles in there. Yeah, yeah, I need that. Yeah, <laughs> let me have this. Sorry, I'm so mean to you. <laughs> we really should have been reading a lot of your section headings on this because they're they're very good. We've had uh, what's mum got to do with it? The mumsters, uh, mummy dearest is my favorite. That was too easy. Uh, mum's the word under wraps. Yeah, there's some really good ones. Now for the ride out, we've got. Mum wa diddy diddy mum diddy do. That's good. Thank you. Oh, just good. a little treat for you. Yeah, I like that. I want everyone else to share it. <laughs> Test audiences did not respond well to Mummy 99, and they were put off by the vague title. What more do you need? I, it's, it's descriptive. I, yeah, I don't know. The president of domestic marketing for Universal, Mark Smudger, told Entertainment Weekly at the time, they saw it as icky horror stuff, this musty old guy in bandages. We debated changing the name to Raiders of the Lost Mummy or something <laughs> like that. Presumably Steven Spielberg, I the cease and desist. Uh, but in the end, we decided to go with just the mummy. We decided we would redefine the myth with the film, which I would argue it did. 
The studio sent cash into a Super Bowl ad, which Steven Summers told DW helped drum up interest in the film. And they moved the May 1999 release date up to give the film room against Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, which it probably needed. And it worked. The Mummy was the number one film in the United States and Canada on its opening weekend, grossing $43 million, the highest non-holiday May opening and the ninth biggest opening of all time. Yeah, I remember this movie being huge. Mm -hmm. It went on to gross over $416.4 million worldwide and obviously spanned a franchise, what, Two sequels plus the uh, two, the Rock movie. Two Scorpion Kings, three Scorpion two Kings. Scorp oh, wow. Also, an animated TV show that I remember nothing about. I, I don't know anything about that. Um, that ran for two seasons. Alma <laughs> Jalili, who played the warden, told EW the Universal representative said the film's opening was so strong it saved the studio. Universal had a number of flops, and the Mummy literally saved the studio. I had some family who worked at Universal at the time, and I. I confirm this. I was I was gonna say, what did your uh, aunt say about? Um... I don't remember any specifics beyond like you know, thank God, <laughs> I did okay. Because I remember Babe Pig in the City being the bomb. Yeah, that it was, and I remember the um, the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie with Rene Russo and I forget <laughs> Bobby who. De Niro, baby. Bo oh, right, right, right. That bombed. Dudley Do Right bombed. Yeah, they they really went in with trying to do stream. all that Ward, all those G Ward stuff. What, yeah, what no, the hell precipitated biting. that? You know what it might have been? I mean, it might have been the Flintstones doing so well. Uh, Although they did, you know what? They did Viva Rock Vegas, which, which I, I went to see yeah. at the mirror over the head of Universal's house. And that was a, a another bomb. But I think it was, I think they really thought that if they just kept going hard on, uh, you know, I mean, again, the late 80s, early 90s, they were revamping all the comic book superheroes and stuff, and then they kind of moved into the more family-friendly yeah, cartoon that's franchises, true. and I think they thought that they'd finally find one that hit. Man. But back to The Mummy. Oh, It's home sorry. video release in September of 1999, sold 7 million units on VHS and 1 million on DVD, very early DVD, I would imagine, became the year's best-selling live-action VHS and second best-selling DVD behind The Matrix. And it was figures like those that helped Universal gross over $1 billion in home video sales that year. You know what the first movies released on uh, DVD were? Oh, man. I I knew this trivia fact, and I can't remember now. What, what is it? Twister. Oh, that wasn't the one I thought. So would that have been 95? 97. Twister, oh. Mars Attacks. That's in the U.S., though. Do you know what they were in 96? No, what? In Japan, Blade Runner. The Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Eraser and The Fugitive. Ooh, Fugitive I like. Two Harrison Ford movies first released on DVD in history. Good for him. Uh, critics didn't love Mummy 99, but mostly uh, they agreed it was fun. Um, unsurprisingly, Roger Ebert had a great line. There is hardly a thing I can say in its favor, except that I was cheered by nearly every minute of it. <laughs> I cannot argue for the script the direction, the action, or even the mummy. But I can say that I was not bored, and sometimes I was unreasonably pleased. Uh, Mariah Lewis wrote at Junkie in 2019, On paper, nothing about the mummy should have worked. It was an earnest action-adventure movie in a decade when three films in that same genre had spectacularly failed back-to-back. -back. The Rocketeer, 91. The Shadow, starring uh, Alec Baldwin, 94. And The Phantom, starring Billy Zane. In 96, you remember any of those? I mean, you have to have remembered Rocketeer. 
I bet you like. Oh Rocketeer. yeah, I remember the Rocketeer. Yeah, and yeah. I remember the Phantom because of Billy Zane. Yeah, and his purple suit. Uh, she continued, the film rested on the shoulders of Brendan Fraser doing an Indiana Jones riff after a string of comedies where he played a variation of the dumb blonde. And the filmmaker at the helm was a guy whose last flick was about a tentacled sea creature that eats a cruise ship. <laughs> but the film spawned an empire, continues to be beloved by people today. I found a Thrillist article from a few years back that said the mummy is the only perfect film. <laughs> um... Which, you know, your mileage may vary. Obviously, I love it. I'll still go to bat for it. I'm glad people are coming back around on Brendan Fraser. I want to give Roger Ebert, unsurprisingly, the last word in this uh, his, from his review that I love that sums up the charms of this film. There is a little immaturity stuck away in the crannies of even the most judicious of us, and we should treasure it. <laughs> That's beautiful. Hashtag mummy 99. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. I almost said I'm Brendan Fraser. <laughs> I'm Alex Brendan Fraser. Tonight, Heigl, you can be Brendan Fraser. <sighs> and I'm Jordan Brendan Fraser. Rachel Weiss. <laughs> All four of us will catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Yes. Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.